If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them this morning to Romans chapter 12. After a couple of weeks off for Advent, we are back in our study going through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we pick up our study this morning in verse 9. This section, verses 9 through 21, is remarkable for a number of reasons, one of which, not the least of which, is the sheer volume of individual exhortations that we find in this passage. We've been talking about how chapter 12 really makes a marked uh, difference in Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapters 1 through through 11 are typically known as the theological portion of his letter. And in chapter 12, he begins a more practical section and how it's filled with more exhortations and commands and imperative verb forms. But now in verses 9 through 21, through the remainder of chapter 12, that difference really begins to take shape and we really begin to see how different this section is from the previous section that we've spent so much time in, in chapters 1 through 11. In verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12, it's just 13 verses. In those 13 verses, we have 30 individual exhortations. Did you hear that? 30 exhortations in 13 verses. It's just rapid fire exhortations that we see here. So many that the ESV translation, which is the one that I use, has even provided a subtitle for this part of chapter 12, and they call it Marks of the True Christian. So let's read this whole passage, verses 9 through 21, but this morning we're just going to focus on verse 9 and unpack three of the 30 exhortations that we're going to look at in the next three or four weeks. This is the Word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to gather with your people and worship you in spirit and in truth. And now, Father, we turn to your precious word, and we we desire to return thanks to you, Father, for this book that we hold in our hands and the way in which you have preserved it so that we can know with confidence that these represent your very breath, words that we can trust, words that your spirit will use to transform us, to look and be more like Jesus so that you're glorified through our lives. God, we ask that you would do that. In this passage of scripture in verses 9 through 21, that carry so many do's and don'ts. God, would you speak clearly to us and would your spirit use these words to bring about the kind of transformation that will cause us to offer up to you a good and acceptable offering of sacrifice and praise. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as we, uh, as we begin, uh, you might hear a little crack in my voice. I've got a little post-Christmas head cold. And so if I pause to uh, blow my nose, don't let that distract you from what God is saying to you this morning. It's a little difficult to speak when you've got all those sinuses backed up. But we will trudge through and persevere and trust the Lord. Um, now, let me start by saying that after reading through those 13 verses, I would suggest you, to you that at least on the surface, there's really not a whole lot profound or new ideas that we find in that, that particular passage. A lot of what we read through there, you've, you've heard many times before. A lot of what Paul exhorts us to do in this passage, we're already doing to a certain degree. And so the temptation for us is to breeze through a passage like this and then quickly move on to something that we might consider more meaty. But I think we ought to resist that temptation and slow down enough to prayerfully consider what the Spirit of God is speaking to us about in a passage like this. Consider with me, for example, why Paul might provide this collection of rapid-fire exhortations at this point in the letter. What is his purpose in doing this? Later in the letter, if you read through the remainder of this letter in one sitting, you'll notice that in chapter 15, he tells us the reason for why he writes things like this. In Romans 15, verses 14 through 16, Paul says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. In other words, you're doing good in a lot of these areas that I've addressed. But here's the but, verse 15. But on some points... I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by, by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Why? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells them, I know that much of what I'm writing to you about, you're doing well at. You're, you're doing these things. And so they ought to be encouraged by that. And, and so we too ought to be encouraged if, if God has brought about some level of transformation in our life and these things are exhibited in our own lives. But Paul goes on to say that he writes very boldly in, on some points, do this, don't do that. By way of reminding them because of the grace given to him, reminding them of how they ought to be transformed in their heart, in their mind, in their soul, in their actions, in their behavior. How they ought to be transformed so that the offering of the Gentiles, to whom was his primary audience and is us as well, the offering of the Gentiles, their lives would be acceptable, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The, the idea of our lives being an acceptable and sanctified, or we might say made holy offering or sacrifice to God, should remind us of the opening verses of this whole section. The first two verses of chapter 12, where Paul said this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, that is to offer up your lives, your bodies, your very lives as a living sacrifice, holy, which means sanctified, and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, so what is Paul doing then 
in verses 9 through 21 in this passage that we're beginning to look at this morning. He's giving us bold reminders, he says. Reminders of the kind of transformed life that we're to be living as a means by which the Holy Spirit will then sanctify us or make us holy in a very practical way so that we individually and collectively and corporately might be an acceptable and sanctified offering of worship to God. So we see that this section is desperately important then. But it's not important because our obedience to these kinds of exhortations leads to salvation. Let us reject that notion outright. Even if we had skipped over the first 11 chapters, even if the book of Romans began with chapter 12, even then we could not conclude that Paul ever even hints at the possibility of us earning salvation and rescue from what we deserve because we obey some manner of exhortations like these. But we didn't skip the first 11 chapters because in them... Paul makes abundantly clear that the only way for sinners like us to be reconciled to God is to have the penalty of our sins removed and to be made righteous. And the only way for those two things to happen is if God graciously puts his spirit in us and gives us new life by which we can come to faith in Jesus as our Lord, our Savior, our Forgiver, our Rescuer, and Redeemer. Only then, only then can our sins truly be atoned for, that is, covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ. Only then can we have the righteousness of Jesus, a righteousness that is not our own, but becomes our own by way of faith in him as our substitute. This is the only way for sinful man to be reconciled to God, not by following these 30 exhortations that we find in verses 9 through 21, not by following any manner of exhortations or commands from God's word. Paul made it very very clear in Romans 3.20 that by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that is made made righteous in his sight. It can't happen by that. So, Yet, this section here, with all of these exhortations, is still desperately important. But not because it is our salvation that is at stake. I would submit to you that something far more important than our salvation is at stake in a passage like this. Now, some of you might wonder, well, what could possibly be more important than our salvation? I'll tell you, what is more important than our salvation is the reason for our salvation. And the reason for our salvation is the worship of God. See, God created us to worship him. That's why he made us. We messed that up with our sin. And so he recreated us in Christ. He, he remade us as in Christ to once again be a worshiper of him as he deserves. And in a passage like this, that is what is at stake, the worship of God. You see, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 and Romans 15 verses 14 through 16 are like bookends around this practical section in this letter, wherein we learn how to worship the Lord with our lives as he so supremely deserves Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we, we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We ought to be transformed like this so that we can present our lives as a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. And then Romans 15, verses 14 through 16 provide the other bookend. That's where Paul tells us that he has boldly reminded us of many things so that we would be transformed in heart, soul, and mind in order to be an acceptable and sanctified offering of praise to God. In that Romans 15 passage that we just read, it ended 
with verse 16 saying, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, and then he closes with this, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies this offering of our lives to him in order for it to be an acceptable and God-glorifying offering. But the means by which he does this are these bold reminders whereby we are transformed, where we live this transformed life that we're supposed to be living. So that's what we have here in verses 9 through 21. What we have here is, is nothing less than the means by which the Holy Spirit intends to transform you and I. We would be an acceptable, so that we would be an acceptable and holy sacrifice to God. So that our lives, collectively, corporately, would be an orchestra of praise to our God who so supremely deserves that. And so we read and we study this section of Scripture in Romans 12 very prayerfully, praying that the Holy Spirit would use passages like this to do that, to transform us in these ways. Now, some of these exhortations we're already doing, you're already doing, and if so, praise God for that. Praise God that he has transformed you in these ways. But for all of us, with some of these exhortations, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to us ways in which he intends to transform us so that our lives would sing a song of God-glorifying praise to him. So we ought to be watchful for that. We need to be mindful for that, mindful of that as we unpack these scriptures Look for the Spirit's conviction in your lives as we read and study these verses. Be ready to respond faithfully to what he says. Be, be ready to re repent as he brings conviction to whatever degree these things aren't evident in your life. And be ready. Be ready, church, for the Spirit to instruct you and to walk alongside you as he transforms your heart and mind in these ways for the glory of God. So this morning, we're just going to look at verse 9. That's a long introduction that will satisfy the next couple of weeks at least. This morning, we're just going to look at verse 9, and we see there three of these 30 exhortations. Paul says in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Now, while we're going to unpack this as three of the 30 exhortations that he covers in this section, we can't treat them as independent of one another. The, the, the grammar here doesn't allow us to do so. The grammar of this verse links them. They are dependent on one another. The first of these phrases, let love be genuine, serves as both the subject and the predicate of this sentence. Serve as the subject and the predicate of this verse. The subject is understood as you, you. And what are you to do? You are to let your love be genuine. The next two phrases in this verse, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, those are, those are participles. Those are participial phrases that serve to modify or describe how we are to let our love be genuine. In other words, it is genuinely loving to abhor what is evil, and to hold fast to what is good. Or, or we could say, we are to let our love be genuine by abhorring what is evil and by holding fast to what is good. So let's look at that first phrase first. Let love be genuine. This is the Greek word agape. This is that unconditional, God-like kind of love that as believers in Christ who have been transformed by the gospel that we're to exhibit in our lives. But what exactly is it? Is it a feeling? Is it emotion? Is it an action? Is it a commitment? What is this? 
We know in other parts, parts of the Bible, we're exhorted to love God. It's the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the context of Romans 12 here is telling us that he's talking about loving others. Certainly we are to love God, but in the context of Romans 12, he's talking about loving others. But, but who are the others? We know that the Bible tells us that we're to love everyone. We're to, we're to love fellow believers in Christ. We're to, we're to love one another. We're to love brothers and sisters in Christ. We're also to love those outside the church. We're even, according to Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're to even love our neighbors, right? But in the context of this chapter, I, I think he's primarily talking about loving one another in the body of Christ here, fellow believers within the church. But I would submit to you that the object of our love here doesn't really matter that much because that's not the primary purpose of verse 9. According to Paul here, he seems to be primarily addressing the kind of love, the, the character of the love that we are to have. He says it's to be genuine. Let love be genuine. That word means without hypocrisy. In fact, the New American Standard even translates it that way. Let your love be without hypocrisy. The King James Version says, let love be without dissimulation. I didn't know what that word meant, so I looked it up. In the dictionary, the word dissimulation means a concealment of one's thoughts, feelings, or character. It means pretense. So we're, we're to love others without hypocrisy, and without pretense. We know that Jesus taught his disciples a lot about hypocrisy, and so we can learn from his teachings in the Gospels about hypocrisy and seek to apply that to Paul's exhortation here to love others without hypocrisy. So what I, I want to give you three things that Jesus taught about hypocrisy in the Gospels. And the first is that hypocrisy always focuses on the exterior. It's always about the show. That's what hypocrisy is all about. I want to show you where Jesus taught this. He taught this in three different places in Matthew's Gospel alone. The first is in Matthew 23, actually going from the end towards the beginning in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus called out the Pharisees in this particular setting for their hypocrisy of focusing on the exterior while ignoring the condition of their heart. Verse 25 of Matthew 23 says this. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. Why? For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. You're focused on the outside. You're cleaning the outside of the cup and the plate, but man, is it dirty on the inside. It's full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes on in verse 37 when he's talking about prayer, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In other words, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you guys are all about the outward appearance. You're all about appearing to be good on the outside. You're all about the outward behavior being just right. But you don't do it for the right reasons. You do it to appear holy. You do it for the show when in fact you're as dirty as can be in your heart. You do it just for the show. Jesus also talked about the showiness of hypocrisy in Matthew 15 when he says in verses 7 and 8, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So we, we know that we can be hypocritical in our worship of God. When 
we put on this pretense of worship when our heart isn't truly in it. And Jesus said that kind of worship is worship in vain. It's useless. It's pointless. But we can also love others with hypocrisy. When, we, when our love is all about the show, when we go through the mechanics of loving others when there's really no heart in it at all. I think this is where we need to be real careful of buying into the notion that love is only an action. That it's never an emotion. Now I do believe that the kind of love that Paul is referring to here is primarily an action, but it's not an action devoid of emotion. It's not an action devoid of feeling. If it was, then it would be hypocritical. If it was, then it would simply be a pretense. It would be loving for the appearance of being seen as being a loving person. It would be all about the show, right? In his great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul described this kind of vain love this way. In verse 3 of that chapter, he says, If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, in other words, if I'm really good at the show of love and devotion and passion, but he goes on and says, But have not love, I gain nothing. The third place where Jesus talks about the showiness of hypocrisy is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 2, Jesus says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Why do they do that? That they may be praised by others. I mean, just imagine that 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 picture there, the, the, the hypocrites, whoever they are, they go into the synagogue, and, and before they give to the needy, they sound a trumpet. I'm going to give to the needy. Why do they do that? Jesus says that they may be praised by others. What does Jesus say they get? Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. If that's what they're after, they get that, but that's all they get. This is where he goes on in verse 5 to talk about prayer. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. How do they pray? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus is telling us that hypocrisy is all about the show. It's all about the performance. And if you put on a good show, what do you get? You get the praise of the people. And that's what the hypocrite wants. It wants the praise of the people, even if it's just a performance. So how can we love without this kind of pretense? Without hypocrisy, without making it all about the show? Well, I want to talk about that in just a moment, but for now, let's just settle in and allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction where maybe he needs to bring conviction in my life and in yours, perhaps. Is your love for others just a show? Is it just a performance? It's probably not a yes or no question. We probably need to talk about that in terms of degrees so to what degree is your love for others a show or a performance so that you might be seen as a loving person or be noticed by others in that way may God transform our hearts and minds and purify our motives in this regard a second thing that Jesus says about hypocrisy First is that hypocrisy focuses on the, on the exterior. The second is that hypocrisy draws attention to the flaws of others. And many times this is done in an attempt to draw the focus away from our own flaws 
such that we are made to look better by focusing on the flaws of others. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's unintentional, but the effect is just the same. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 6. In verse 42 of that chapter, he says this, How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is speck, take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, a silly picture that we get in our mind of this guy with a log sticking out of his eye and with that log sticking out of his eye he's trying to get the little speck out of his brother's eye he sees that fault in his brother's eye it's silly but man is it profound why is it that we tend to see so clearly the flaws in others And we tend to be so blind to our own. Well, Jesus tells us why. Because we're hypocrites. It is hypocrisy to think that we are so flawless as to clearly see the flaws in someone else without doing serious self-evaluation of ourselves and doing a serious checking of our own motives Part of loving others is saying hard things and confronting them with truth. This is part of what Paul means in the second half of this verse when he says, Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. But the question is, how can we do that in others if we aren't first willing to do that in ourselves? Before I can confront what is evil in others and exhort them and encourage them to hold fast to what is good, then I must be willing to let the Holy Spirit clean my house so that I'm not loving others hypocritically. And then a third point that Jesus makes in his teaching about hypocrisy in the Gospels The first is, it's all about the show. It's all about the outside. Second, it tends to focus on the flaws of others in order to hide the flaws in ourselves. But thirdly, hypocrisy is so incredibly self-centered. Hypocrisy is all about self. Listen to this story that Jesus told in Luke 13. Luke 13, beginning in verse 10, Luke told this story about Jesus. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So it's the Sabbath. He's teaching in the synagogues. Verse 11, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. It's a great miracle, right? This woman had been bent over and couldn't stand up straight for 18 years and Jesus lays his hand on her and speaks a word of miracle, a word of healing over her and he heals her. A great miracle, right? Praise God. But then the hypocrites enter in. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. In other words, how dare you come into the synagogue on the Sabbath and ask to be healed? even though she didn't ask to be healed here. According to our rules, that's work. And you ought to abstain from work on the Sabbath. And so how dare you come? It was a backhanded rebuke of Jesus for giving the healing on the Sabbath. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger? And lead it away to water it? 
And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. You see, the, the Pharisees' zeal for the Sabbath was hypocrisy. Because what they were zealous for was not the Lord, but themselves. They were zealous for their own well-being and their own property and their own back pocket. Because not one of them would have refused to do the work on a Sabbath of untying the ox or their donkey and walking them out to the water hole so that their ox or donkey could continue to live by drinking water. Why was that work okay on the Sabbath? Well, because it affected their livelihood. Because it affected their property. Because it affected their wallet. Jesus simply exposed them for their self-centeredness. They weren't being God-centered on the Sabbath. They were being self-centered. They were selfish. But love without hypocrisy is selfless. This is exactly what Paul said earlier back in verse 3 of chapter 12 when he said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. When we love others, we ought not to love from a mindset that thinks too highly of ourselves, thinks more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So to what degree... Is your love and mind, our love of others, selfish or selfless? Selfless or self-centered? Do you love others simply because they're made in the image of God? And they deserve to be loved and cared for and ministered to simply because they're image bearers? Or do you in some cases love them in order to get something from them or simply to be noticed as one who is very loving, a very loving person. May the Holy Spirit transform our hearts and purify our motives in loving others. May our love, both individually and corporately as a church, be without hypocrisy. Now, grammatically, the second half here of verse 9 modifies the first half. These are participial phrases that modify the command that's given in the first half to let love be genuine. In in other words, how are we to let our love be genuine? How are we to let our love be without hypocrisy? By abhorring what is evil and by holding fast to what is good. To abhor means to hate and to hold fast means to, means to embrace or cling to. And so Paul is saying that we are to hate what is evil and embrace what is good. John Piper notes here five observations from those two phrases. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And I, I can't improve on those observations. So I'm just going to give them to you and then fill in the blanks of what they mean. The first observation is that from these two phrases, we learn that there is such a thing as objective good and evil. There is such a thing as that. There is such a thing as objective good and objective evil outside of ourselves. When, when Paul says here, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, he is leading us to make an assumption here that there is such a thing as objective good and evil apart from ourselves. You see, our loving something doesn't make it good, and our hating something doesn't make it evil. Let me give you an example. I'm going to make an admission to you. I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table here. I I struggle. I, I really find myself at times struggling with a hatred of the Alabama Crimson Tide football team. 
I admit it, you can pray for me. But that doesn't make them evil. Many, many years ago, I hated Brussels sprouts. But that didn't make them evil. Even though as a nine-year-old boy, I thought they were evil, and I thought my parents were evil for serving them to me. On the other hand, on the flip side, my love of things like Christmas cookies and Christmas fudge and everything else that has a lot of sugar and fat in it at Christmas time, my love of the, those things doesn't necessarily make them objective good either. Now, those are silly examples, but it makes the point. Our loving something doesn't make it good, and our hating something doesn't make it evil. What makes something good is when God says it is good. And what makes something evil is when God says it is evil. There is objective goodness and rightness in our world. And the foundation of that objective good and right is God. And this God has displayed his goodness most perfectly and most profoundly in his son Jesus Christ as revealed in scripture. So if we're to let our love be genuine, we must reject our own subjective criteria for good and evil and embrace a biblical criteria for good and evil and love from that foundation. So then we must not let our love for others be driven by our own preferences and partialities, neither should it be driven by our the object of our love, their preferences or partialities. Instead, our, our love ought to be compelled by truth, goodness, and beauty as defined by God himself in his word. A second observation that Piper notes here is that choosing good over evil is not enough. It, it requires an intensity, an inner intensity on our part is required. Think of the words that Paul uses here to describe what he's saying here. The, the, the words that he uses here do not simply speak of choosing good over evil. The word that is translated abhor, Strong's dish, Dictionary, notes that this word means to utterly detest. Utterly detest. Thayer's Dictionary says it means to have a horror of. So there's an intensity to this word. Conversely, holding fast to what is good also refers to something more intense than a mere choosing. This word means to embrace or to cling to. In fact, a form of that very same word is used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 when he refers to the one flesh union that husband and wife are to cling to, hold fast to in the marriage relationship. Definitely an intensity in that word as well, an intensity of emotion. So if we're to be transformed into people who love genuinely without hypocrisy, we must do more than simply avoid evil. We must hate it. And we must do more than just prefer good. We must cling to it. We must embrace it. We must love it. If God says something is evil, and our hearts are being transformed to look more like his heart, then I would submit to you that it borders on hypocrisy to simply avoid evil. If our hearts are being transformed into the likeness of his heart, then we will grow to hate evil, to abhor it, to utterly detest it more and more and more as he transforms us into his likeness. Similarly, if, if, we're, if God says something is good and we're being transformed into his likeness, then, then we're not just going to simply prefer good or, or, or choose good over evil. We're going to love good. We're going to hold fast to it. We're going to embrace that which God says is good. A third observation is that the Bible here in these phrases commands that our emotions be changed <laughs> even when we're not in complete control of our emotions. 
we mentioned this earlier when we talked about our love being genuine. We, we can't just say that love is an action or a commitment devoid of any emotion or feeling. Because clearly here, Paul is telling us that we must feel a certain way about evil. And we must feel a certain way about good. And we can't fake our way through emotions. So this kind of transformed life that Paul is describing here that we're to have is not one of emotionless willpower. No, it's about a transformed heart. A transformed heart that truly loves what is good and genuinely hates and detests what is evil. So what if you find that you are loving what is evil and hating what is good? Well, then that means you need a heart transplant. You need a new heart. That's what the Lord said to unholy Israel through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36 when he said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from you and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. God, God, God was saying in essence, Israel... You are so twisted, your heart is so twisted that you have begun to love what is evil and hate what is good. And so I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out of you that heart of stone that is cold and hard to the things of God, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh that is soft and responsive to the things of God. And if that's where you find yourself loving what is evil and hating what is good, then that's what you need as well. You need a heart transplant. You need a new heart, a heart transformed by the grace of God. A fourth observation of these phrases is that objective moral good is good for us and objective moral bad is bad for us. Now that's very simple logic, right? But we, we sometimes tend to forget this with respect to loving other people. And I think that's how we're meant to understand this part of the verse because again, Paul is telling us here how we are to let our love be genuine, how we are to let our love be without hypocrisy. Now I think we can all agree that <clears throat> to love someone means, at least in part, it means to do them good, right? To love someone means to, to do them good. At least that's part of what it means. But as we mentioned earlier, I don't get to decide what is good or bad for my friends. And neither do my friends get to decide what is good or bad for them. Only God does. And it's not loving of me to just give them what they want or do for them what they would desire apart from God's objective criteria of good. So if we are to love people genuinely, we must abhor what is what God said is is bad for them and we must embrace what God says is good for them. If we truly love others, we will want and strive for what is good for them and what is good for them is what God says is objectively good. And then finally, a fifth observation about these phrases is that genuine love requires hate. That's, that's really what verse 9 says, right? Genuine love must, on some degree, hate. There's a positive and negative side of hate, and, and, and Scripture teaches both. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we're told, and, and, and in other places, we're, we're, we're told that it's a sin to hate people in any setting, even our enemies. But we're also told here and elsewhere that we ought to hate evil. The psalmist said in Psalm 97 verse 10, oh, you who love the Lord, hate what is evil. Hate evil. And Paul says it here. If we are to let our love be genuine and without hypocrisy, we must, we must hate. We must hate evil. 
Not people, but evil. Along these lines, I want to encourage all of us to not buy into the lie that that whatever evil we might be cherishing in the dark recesses of our lives, don't buy into the lie that that's not going to hurt anybody else besides yourself. The Apostle John tells us that our, our own abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good in our own lives is in itself a display of our love for others. He says this in 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. That's, that's a good thing to know. How can we know that we love the children of God? He tells us when we love God and obey his commandments. So back to the log in my eye, speck in your eye mentality that we talked about earlier. If I'm not hating evil and embracing good in my own life, then in essence, I'm not loving others. It's not loving for me. It's not loving of others of of me if I'm not going to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good in my life. And And it's certainly not loving others genuinely when I exhort them to hate evil and love good when I'm not willing to do that myself. If I'm to love others by doing good to them, then we ought to admit at least in this setting, that the greatest good that I can do for others, that that we as believers can do for others is to point them to Christ. That's the greatest good that we can do. If, If loving others is doing good for people, then the greatest good that we can do is to point them to Christ, point them to the gospel. But how can I do that if I'm embracing evil instead of hating it. If that's the case, then my witness is not genuine and neither is my love for God or them. But if we are to love genuinely, then we must hate evil in our own lives. Then and only then will our lives display the beauty of Christ. You see, when I'm not hating evil, when I'm embracing evil in a certain way, then that's dishonoring Christ because I'm obscuring the beauty of Christ with my own evil. But if I'm hating evil, then my life will display the beauty of Christ. And then I'll be able to genuinely point others to the greatest good found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope for hopeless sinners. And our genuine love for God and our genuine love for others will compel us to share this love with them. And our lives will reinforce that message of hope rather than undermining that. So church, let us hear from the Spirit. May the Spirit speak these words into our lives this morning. Let our love be genuine. Let our love be without hypocrisy, hating, abhorring, growing in our utter detest for what God says is evil, and growing in our love for and our clinging to and our embracing of what God says is good for us and for people around us. Let's pray.